Chung Shea started his career at hedge fund AQR Capital Management before leaving finance to co-found Datapad with his college classmate, Wes McKinney. Datapad was acquired by Cloudera in 2014, and now Chung manages a team within Cloudera, which we will talk a bit about in this episode of The Accidental Engineer. We'll also talk about how contributing to open source software has impacted Chung's career and the three attributes of a job that he recommends evaluating before accepting an offer. Enjoy! Welcome all, uh, Max of the Accidental Engineer. Today we are joined by Chung She. Uh, Chung, uh, do you mind a brief introduction about what it is you do now? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I work for Cloudera now, and Cloudera is a, a big data provider um, and a machine and analytics platform company. So I work on the product inside Cloudera called Cloudera mm-hmm. Navigator. So if you think of big data as your data lake, Cloudera Navigator is your life raft when you're drowning in too much data. For our audience that uh, doesn't know this about you, uh, I want to make people aware that you've contributed heavily to Pandas, the very popular uh, Python library for conducting data analysis, um, uh, taking the idea of a data frame as invented, I don't know if that's true, <laughs> as invented by R, I guess, um, and porting that to Python, where it is tremendously popular and in use, and you yourself use it on a day-to-day basis. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so uh, as you, I'm sure, all know, uh, Pandas was uh, created by Wes McKinney. So he and I used to work together at a company called AQR Capital Management. And um, when we were both kind of junior analysts there, our job consisted of uh, data loading and cleaning data and data preparation, a lot of data engineering tasks. Mm-hmm. And the tools at the time were you know, uh, incredibly inefficient. So Wes went down this path of, okay, let's create tools to make that easy to, to do. Um, and so, you know, he landed on Python, he landed on, oh, there's this thing called NumPy, and it makes uh, kind of matri- matrix and array manipulations are easy. But then when you actually um, kind of hit real world data, there's all this whole class of problems that NumPy isn't very well suited to solving. And that's where kind of the, the motivation for Pandas came from. So I, I was kind of a very early user, uh, you know, this was like before Pandas was even open source. Um, we, you know, I used, uh, Wes showed me the, his like first, first version. I loved it. And so, uh, you know, I was sort of pushing Pandas throughout my group uh, at EQR. Um, for yeah. people who don't know what the what that use case is where numpy doesn't uh isn't adequate uh i guess for our audience that doesn't know pandas where numpy only deals with homogeneous data types where you have a matrix uh, where your rows and columns and every cell in it is of a single data type pandas abstracts and deals with columns only i guess is is one way to paraphrase the the benefit of pandas versus numpy is you can work with heterogeneous data so you might have a date column or a date index while you might also have a float integer 
string type columns. Am I getting this close to right? It's one of the one of the main differences for mm -hmm. sure. Um, so I think NumPy excels essentially where you know MATLAB excels, where if you have nice, clean, orderly matrices, and all you needed to do was linear algebra, uh, that was a great tool. Um, and so you know it that's why it became popular. Now for when as data science became popular, you know data science uh, in real world data sets come from a lot of different sources. Uh, you have to they're often not sorted or not aligned. They're missing data or have bad data. And there's a lot of let's say if you have time series data, then you have to do regularization or, or downsampling, upsampling, all sorts of um, you know these data engineering manipulations that um, we've we've built into pandas to make that easy. So for our audience that isn't familiar with AQR capital management, uh, why what were the what were the core problems that you guys were finding the existing tools to be inadequate for solving at AQR? I realize that they're a pretty private company, but uh, <laughs> perhaps we can dance around the subject and talk a little bit yeah. about the types of problems. Sure, you guys I mean it's a uh, you know AQR is a it's a large uh, multi strategy hedge fund slash asset management company. And so it has two sort of uh, arms. There's an equity investment arm, and there's kind of a global, um, global macro uh, investment arm where it's invests in fixed income um, uh, you assets, know, assets, and, <laughs> and other things. Sure, sure. Uh, the types of problems, you know, this was the 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 time when Pandas was first created. And when I worked there, it was something like, you know. 2007 to 2009, 2010-ish. Um, and at AQR, all that workflow was done in a hodgepodge of Excel, uh, VB, VB script, um, uh, kind of a little bit of Java and some C++. And all of that um, used the database as the integration point where they all came together, right? And so it was not only did you have these data munging problems where n none of those languages or ecosystems had a good way to, to do data cleaning um, and do vectorized operations on data. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's just one problem. And then the other problem is as you go through your data pipeline, you have to jump from language to language to language and none of that is automated or easy to do. And you always have to go back to the database. And so, uh, the database became the bottleneck in a lot of scenarios. And Pandas uh, kind of solved, solved that problem by one, providing all these functionality to increase productivity. So tasks that took us, uh, you know, a whole day or like several hours to do, you know, was, you know, maybe five lines of code now or 10 lines of code. Mm -hmm. And um, because Python is so versatile that we can automate maybe, not automate, but we could kind of unify maybe 80% of that data pipeline all into Python so that everything can happen seamlessly in one um, kind of workload, right? So now you don't have to go from, you know, manage three different languages and a database, and you're fighting for resources with other people who are doing the same thing. When you guys were, were developing Pandas in this context of finance and working with financial data, uh, it sounds like there might have been an explicit focus on time series data and data indexed on uh, date time. Uh, did you guys at the time, you and Wes, really realize how much more generally applicable um, 
pandas might be for data sets outside of time series or or is that just a, a a surprise? I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think uh, West left AQR uh, about a year before I did to go to Duke, and I think I think when we were working in AQR, there wasn't as much realization of how applicable it just it was um, outside of finance because it, it is kind of every industry is a, a little bit of a bubble in in and of itself. But um, I think you know West left AQR went to Duke to go to grad school and to, I, he first made that re realization, hey, it's not just useful for finance. Um, and so, you know, I also left finance. He convinced me to, to leave in like 2012. And so he and I worked on Pandas together for a whole year. This was something like Pandas 0.6 or something like that. Um, and that was the year when we saw one, a big uptick in Pandas users and two, that's that was when pandas really took off outside of finance, uh, and you know in the beginning it was still very he heavily financial focused. That people were coming in and say, "Hey, I'm from you know this hedge fund or, or that you know bank, and I need to do this. Can you make a new feature on on, on GitHub?" And then, but um, as time went on, it quickly became clear. Oh, hey, like uh, you're not you know other data scientists came in and said, "Hey, I needed this feature or made bug reports." Um, and, and more than just, you know, not data scientists, but just plain scientists mm -hmm. started using this too. Mm -hmm. Um, and they found it immensely helpful for them as well. So I, I got to credit you guys for making pandas cause I personally have used it on the job. Not, not so frequently as of late, but, uh, to give our audience some, another concrete example outside of academia and finance where it was, it is applied, uh, or pandas is used was at a job I held in the email marketing and advertising space where we dealt a ton with the choke point of our database and getting data out of the database and being able to be manipulated and played with, like you're describing. Um, we were tracking user engagement type event data, um, which I guess is also inherently time series, but right. <laughs> I'm fishing here to try and come up with some <laughs> other types of data analysis yeah. Yeah. outside of financial data mm -hmm. data analysis that it's tremendously useful for for sure um, yeah, i'm glad to hear that you know absolutely. you found it useful too i mean <laughs> most of the credit belongs to you know wes who came up with the project mm -hmm. and also i think now it's being maintained by jeffrey back uh you know I'm, I, I, I'm back yeah for sure <laughs> i'm just grateful that i got to to contribute to this project and make life easier for oh you know absolutely uh, data analysts so there's a couple of questions i want to run by you <laughs> about career advice just generally because I find your career story so far to be really fascinating. Just for audience that doesn't know it, uh, do you mind sharing about how uh, from college to post-college, we've covered a little bit of ground, but what, what were you up to? How did you get into programming? Sure. Um, I got into programming pretty early in high school. I think I actually even beyond, I remember my first, um, my first foray into programming was in fifth grade and we had these old computers that had you know monochrome screen and the keyboard was part of the monitor and the computer and we learned basic and we programmed kind of like a question and answer program that tell told a story and so um you know i i actually wasn't born in the states i was born in china and I, I moved to the u.s when i was 10. so in fifth grade i was not quite fluent in english yet and um I could read better than I could uh, kind of read or, or understand in conversation. 
So programming the computer in basic was uh, kind of an escape for me. Sure. Um, and so that was my first contact with programming. I, I really liked it. And I think the interest kind of continued through into high school where I took a bunch of, uh, you know, like AP computer science classes um, and some dabbled in like, you know, I think back then it was uh, when uh, Java web applets were supposed to be like the future of the internet. And then what happened, <laughs> man? <laughs> I remember that year too. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, in, in, so in college, I uh, majored in computer science, but uh, I, was a, I was a bit of a slacker in that I didn't actually do any real internships in, uh, in school, and I kind of stumbled on finance my, my senior year. Mm. What, what year was this demand sharing? Like, <laughs> what was the job market like then? I realized you went to MIT, yeah. so for in contrast to myself and a lot of our audience who didn't go to MIT, Maybe the, the recruiting process is, is different at MIT versus elsewhere, but was the job market robust? What, how did you end up finding finance? Yeah, absolutely. So I went to undergrad from 2001 to 2005 mm-hmm. at MIT. Uh, the, the job market was very robust then. This was pre-2008, especially finance during you know, those last few years, like 2005 and 2006 mm-hmm. was incredibly hot. So the job market was very good, especially if you were privileged enough to go to a good school. Um, and at MIT, the top firms would come to the career fairs and they would recruit. And, um, you know, it, it, the top firms had a pretty rigorous interview process. So it wasn't it wasn't that you could just, you know, show them your degree and, and get a job. <laughs> sure. um, but still, I think, you know, compared to compared to most uh, most other people I that I've talked to, like it, you know, the, the MIT name carries a lot of weight uh, for employers. So the job market was overall very easy during that time. And I think for, uh, you know, top schools like MIT or Harvard down the street, uh, it was e- even easier, I would say. So one of the two questions that I mentioned really wanting to ask you was, uh, in conversation outside of this podcast, we've talked about how there's kind of three criteria that you have for evaluating a job and, uh, whether, whether it's a suit for you, um, do you mind sharing for our audience about what, what those criteria are yeah. and like what your rationale is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I always look at jobs, uh, along three dimensions, um, what I call business, the problem and the people. So one is, um, at the end of the day, you, our identities are not attached to our jobs, right? So you, you have to, at the end of the day, you have to pay bills you have to make a living. So you have to make sure that the business is viable uh, and it has to start from the top. You, you know, you have to believe that the market is in a good place for the industry, right? If the industry is dying, um, even if th- this is the best company in that industry, it's, it might not be a good place for you, right? Um, the company has to be in good shape and it has to be headed in the right direction. And the product that you're, you're working on or the team that you're joining has to be working on uh, something that is uh, that contributes to the, contributes to the bottom line for that company, right? So all all of those things have to happen to say, okay, this is where um, I can have a stable kind of uh, financial future. Second dimension is the problem, all right? We're not you know we're not machines, and you know if you're an engineer or software engineer, right? We um, 
even if you have temporary trouble finding a job now, you have to realize if you look at the world overall, if you, or even if you just look at you know, the US, we're in a great position in terms of our, the marketability of our skills. So we get a choice of uh, what problems to work on. And you have, to, you have to look at this job as, are you interested in working on the types of problems they're giving you? Um, are you, is it, you know, do you like enterprise versus consumer or, you know, do you, do you like social media applications versus doing, um, you know, kind of like deep data analysis or is it machine learning? And you have to pick the right kind of technology stack and, and technology kind of layer of abstraction for you. Right. And then the, the third thing is the people, um, which is. You know, do you like the do you like the people around you? Uh, I think that's uh, honestly, I feel like that's probably the the one thing that people neglect a lot um, is especially as they get more experienced. I feel like you know, as you get out of as you, if you're a fresh grad and when you get out of college, um, you 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 know, this podcast is all the accidental engineer, so this is like they're they're accidentally making good choices in that how much they like the team they're the people that they're working with and how much they like that daily interaction plays a big part and i find as people get more experience for some reason they place less importance on that um and i always have to ask why if you see that toxic person or if you see like warning signs about the to uh, toxic culture in a team or in a company overall you know don't you know stop yourself don't say oh i need to make a living or like or like, you know, I don't really care. Uh, this is just a nine to five for me. You know, if your daily life is miserable, it doesn't matter whether you're you're making enough money or you're working on an interesting problem. Yeah, this this almost sounds like a type of hierarchy of needs or Maslow's hierarchy of needs where maybe people who wouldn't otherwise be toxic might be toxic because the business is not fundamentally sound. Exactly. And so they have stresses about their existential welfare that they might be projecting onto their teammates, maybe. Exactly. And you don't, yeah. it doesn't even need to be uh, if the company is in dire situation. You know, if you take a look at, um, you know, if you look at Cloudera, for example, sure. You know, Cloudera went IPO in the last year and the stock price has seen a lot of volatility mm -hmm. as all fresh IPO companies do. But that doesn't stop people from, you know, going through an emotional roller coaster as the stock price goes through, uh, you know, a financial roller coaster. Mm -hmm. For those things, I mean, for I think for this Cloudera case, it's easy to say, you know, look at the long term. Uh, everything else about the company is good. Just you know, six months from now, all this volatility is going to pass, right? But if if you know if the company is not in a good place and you don't see a way out then it's much harder to kind of get out of a like a toxic mindset. So before I ask you the second of the two questions, uh, I think it would be a good opportunity to plug uh, that you guys are hiring at Cloudera, Absolutely. Um, especially for Chung's team. <laughs> if you if you like person-wise, Chung, you should totally apply for your role there. Um, what, yeah. what types of roles are you guys hiring for or skill sets that you're looking for? So we're hiring a pretty experienced uh, back-end uh, engineer mm -hmm. who's familiar with you know, large-scale, complex, perf uh, performant uh, enterprise applications. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and it's, and it's about 
you know, our mission is, like I said, being the right life raft for data analysts and data stewards um, who are working with the data lake. So for our audience members who might be a few years out from having the skill set that might get that job today at Cloudera, uh, what are some things that you recommend they learn or, or research to develop their skill sets to be a good candidate? Mm, that's a good question. So I would say, you know, one is uh, along sort of the technical track. Um, so the, the technical skills you need to succeed in this job are things like, you know, you need to learn how concurrency work. You need to learn how to create abstractions um, in that, you know, I think we talked about this before in that one of the, I, I wish I had majored in math. Um, <laughs> like you did, uh, which is, you know, it really helps you think about abstracting from, you know, just uh, from a few concrete examples and to describe the world using code in as concise and terse terms as possible. Mm -hmm. um, and so what I find is, especially with complex enterprise applications, if you're not good at abstracting and creating software abstractions, you... Um, you have to write a lot of code to do a small amount of things, right? Whereas if you learn that skill, it becomes the opposite and you get a lot of leverage and your productivity uh, goes up many times. Um, and you need to know kind of good judgment in terms of trade-offs between, you know, the performance of the code and how uh, maintainable it is and, you know, how uh, easy it is to read and reuse that code. Um, I think some of those things will uh, just come with practice and that, you know, no amount of reading uh, will, will uh, you know, automatically make you an expert in those things. So it, abstractions are a big deal? Yeah. Uh, are there specific programming languages or uh, libraries like Pandas that are good entry points or guidance about what, what's a good level of abstraction? I mean, today... A very contentious topic, which I'd love to get you on the record about, is maybe for an introductory computer science course, what language should they be using to teach the course? Well, <laughs> I think you you've uh, you waylaid me with this question. So, <laughs> Sorry, bro. You know, I love I love Python, but um, my I guess my first level will always be Scheme, uh, because that's what I learned my you know introductory computer science. Um, and so I think my first course uh, in computer science at MIT was SICP, Structured Interpretation of Computer Programs. And that was taught in uh, using a scheme. And um, I loved, you know, the, the like learning scheme to me, that first course, it just blew my mind. Like every lesson was like, <laughs> um, and, you know, we wrote. Like we wrote streams in Scheme. We learned about recursion. That was the first time I learned about recursion. Um, we learned. We wrote a Scheme interpreter in Scheme, um, and it was just. It, it was, you know, I would say like the top three fun experiences I've had. Learn, you know, learning computer science. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. <laughs> we'll obviously include a link in the show notes to the book. Uh, which I think was written by an MIT professor. Yeah, or professors. yeah. Uh, to to um, Hal Abelson and Jerry Sussman, I think. Yeah, so it, it's freely available online. You can view it in HTML. You don't even need to download a PDF or anything. <laughs> uh, the second question, coming around back to the second question I really wanted to ask you about was uh, when it comes to contributing to open source, uh, there's, there's pretty steep 
uh, learning curve and entry cost. If you, if you really want to know how to effectively contribute to open source, you kind of got to learn version controlling tools like Git and GitHub. Maybe. That's right. Um, you got to learn how to communicate efficiently yes. online. Yes. One <laughs> of um, one of the one of the, the topics that is a recurring topic on our podcast is on the subject of making people more employable. Mm-hmm. Have you found that your tremendous open source contribution contributions, which I'll call them tremendous, you might be more modest, but uh, have you found that to be a very um, positive propellant for your career when it comes to skills it developed for you or by contributing developed skills uh, or made you uh, better known on the job market? Um, I would, I would think so. Yeah. Um, but more, you know, uh, I would say, just, you know, I would say my, my contributions were modest, you know, so <laughs> my, uh, I would say the benefit for my career has been mostly in terms of kind of network referrals, network effects. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, uh, you know, like Wes is the, is the famous, he's the rock star. He's the famous personality. So everyone's heard of, heard of him. For me, it's more about, um, the people that I know, um, recognize my skills and they refer me to, uh, you know, interesting opportunities that come up. And, uh, I think that's been a tremendous propellant for me, for my, my personal career. Awesome. Yeah. I, I mean, I wanted to encourage speaking directly to our audience that they should, Give it a shot if you haven't already uh, contributed to open source. I think people rarely are reminded or told how low the bar can be for contrib- contributions, like documentation. <laughs> that, for sure. This, this, this comes up occasionally, but it, it deserves hammering home that uh, on, on a project like Pandas, there might be certain aspects of it that are very intimidating, intimidating to newcomers to open source, like the Absolutely. C code yeah. or C++ code yeah. or... Or even some of the Python might be more involved, but uh, even as simple as modifying documentation that's not exactly clear to you right. might help others and will likely get merged <laughs> right, right. if it if it truly clarifies things. Yeah, absolutely. So I I think I have kind of two comments to make here. One is for uh, kind of the audience and the users of open source software. If you um, if you want to participate in the open source community or even just use open source software, you have to learn Git, you have to learn GitHub, um, you have to learn kind of basics of Python and whatever library you're using, right? But beyond that, um, don't be intimidated because even if it's just going, if you found a problem while using it and you're going on GitHub to create an issue, that alone is already contributing to the project. Um, So don't think of the bar as, oh, I have to like write performance C code in order to be considered a contributor, even if it's just opening an issue, that's that's perfect already. Um, and beyond that, you know, in Pandas, we've tried to make it easy and make the, the contribution ramp a little bit less steep in that we mark uh, issues as good for beginners, not good for beginners, or difficulty level and priority and things like that. So you can use the tags on GitHub uh, if you're a beginner to, to kind of just filter out what issues are, are good for you and just get your feet wet. And we have a lot of um, tutorials out there for how to contribute to Pandas and not just use Pandas. So, um, you know, obviously it's not perfect and we can always do better, uh, but at least we've tri- we've tried um, to do that and make it easier. And I think that's my second comment, which is to open source maintainers, is 
if you want a bigger community around your project, you have to make it easier um, for different levels of people to have different levels of participation. For sure. I, I, an addendum to that I want to also add is even if you aren't contributing to the Git repo, like submitting pull requests and getting them merged, or like you say, commenting on, on issues, uh, people can contribute to open source by using the library and talking about it in other fora, like Stack Overflow <laughs> or your personal blog. Um, those two alone can contribute a lot to the community. I remember early on in Panda's Genesis, there was a lot of conversations that wouldn't happen maybe in GitHub issues, but they would be discussed in the in Stack Overflow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I, I think it's helpful to remind people that by using open source software and talking about it, even if it's not on GitHub, uh, you're, you're awesome and keep it up. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Stack Overflow, I remember um, the year that I worked a lot on Pandas, that every, you know, once a day I would log on a Stack Overflow, look at unanswered questions and try to answer them. And I would go through the top, you know, top voted issues or, or you know, top 10 lists and say, okay, do these, are, are these captured in GitHub issues already? If not, let me create a new issue. Um, and so even just by asking a question, like you said, that's already contributing. Got it. Got it. Uh, are there any things that we haven't covered in the conversation that we should cover that I, or that I should ask you about that we've missed? Um, I can't really think of anything. <laughs> yeah, me neither. I feel yeah. like we've covered a ton of ground. Yeah. Um, I'm sure we'll have more things to talk about. Uh, perhaps not in this conversation, but hope to have you on again soon. Yeah. Thanks for joining us for the Accidental Engineer podcast. If you enjoyed our interview with Chung and want to hear more about professional software engineering careers, visit our website at theaccidentalengineer.com. We have a large backlog of video interviews and sign up on our email list to be notified when we publish new ones. Yeah!